0: All right, so hopefully that gave you plenty of time to find Psalm 24. I want to read it today. We'll read the whole psalm together, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into the handout that you have in front of you and look at this psalm together. Psalm 24 says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him who seek the face of God, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, you gates; rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, you gates, rise up ancient doors, then the King of glory will come in. Who is he? This King of glory, the Lord of armies, he is the King of glory, Selah. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look to your word, and as we explore together today who you are, what it what it means for us today that the King of glory desires to come in, that the King of glory desires that we may enjoy you through worship. And as we, as we look at, at, at the ever-relevant Word of God, may our hearts be pierced, may our minds be enlightened, and may our wills be emboldened to obey. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the final psalm we're going to look at this summer. Uh, we've been in psalms for a few weeks. The the book of psalms, as we mentioned in the beginning of this series, is, is really broken into five books. And uh, we just chose some psalms out of that first book. Uh, and this will be something that we'll come back to over the years, go through the different books of psalms. But psalms are a collection not not only of of prayers and poetry, but it's a, it was a book of worship for Old Testament Israel and, and still for us as, as Christians today. It's a book that leads us in how to worship God. And this psalm in particular speaks, speaks to us in a way that it's clear is intended to, to be read together in, in the setting of an assembly of believers, which we are here today. And so uh, I think you're going to enjoy this one as we look at it together. Next week, we'll start Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, if you're not familiar with the book, is one of the first five books of the Old Testament, which are typically grouped together and called either the books of Moses or the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses, There's a lot of different names. But those those first five books uh, written by Moses conclude in Deuteronomy. And so if you're feeling adventurous this week and in the next few weeks, it'd be great to jump into and start reading the book of Deuteronomy. You may even want to go back and read. Uh, I would encourage you, if you really want, to, really want to understand the setting of Deuteronomy, to start in Genesis and read at least Genesis in the first half of Exodus. After that, things slow down pretty dramatically, and you could... I'm not saying you shouldn't read those books, but if for the sake of preparing for this series, you may want to just read, stop at the second half of Gen, or Exodus and skip to Deuteronomy from there would probably be a good way to go about that. But either way, prepare uh, prepare yourselves however you desire as we get into Deuteronomy. But today, let's finish with Psalm 24. The question posed in Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? You've probably been in a church service where they do uh, a more liturgical form of worship, and there's these... Call in responses. There's they'll sometimes uh, they'll sometimes be printed in a bulletin, or they might even be up on a screen where somebody up front reads something, and then the congregation is to respond back with predetermined language. This question, "Who is the King of Glory?" functions in this way. This is a call to worship. It's speculated that that perhaps this would have been employed as the Israelites were marching up to the temple of God, as they were climbing that hill to the temple of God, somebody might be calling out, who is this king of glory? And the people would respond in, in ways such as what we saw here. But to understand what's gonna come in the end of this psalm, let's start in the beginning. I really just wanna break this down into three sections so that we understand when we get to that part, the call and response of who is this king of glory, that we understand the context of, and why these words are being spoken. The beginning of the psalm says, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord, for he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. The first point I want to make, and what you'll see on the handout is this, he is the Lord who owns it all. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord. He's the one who owns it all the earth and everything in it in other words everything that you own actually belongs to him everything that you lay claim over everything that we would would describe as being ours by by you could you could go into my office and and there's a lot of stuff in there that I would say hey that's mine but uh you could take it and say no it actually belongs to the lord he wants me to use it. Do that to Greg's office. Don't do that in my office. He he owns it all. The Bible is very clear that that we don't actually own anything. What we are is stewards. What we are is managers. We We are managers over things that God actually owns. He owns this earth. He owns creation. It belongs to him. But the, the point, that that's not really the point that God stresses. He doesn't walk around going, no, that's mine, no, that's mine, no, that's mine. What he wants us to understand when, when we see this kind of language in Scripture is that when we're in God's house, we play by his rules. And You're in God's house. I'm not talking about the church. Sometimes we say that, you know, let's go to the house of the Lord. I'm talking about the universe. It's his world, and it's his rules. Somebody comes over to your house uh, because they were invited or maybe even uninvited and just stop by, they just come over, and they just start doing things that you're uncomfortable with. You might speak up and say, no, 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 the, I, we don't do that here. That's not how we do things. You're, you're, what you're saying is my house, my rules. When, when you're here, you, things go the way I say they're going to go. I dictate and determine the rules of this house. Psalm 24 is reminding us that in this world, he dictates. He determines the rules that this universe operates by. Now, that can be a little bit confusing because in the, let's say, the visible realm, in the things that we see, Humans are at the top of the food chain. Humans are the ones who are governing nations. Humans, And there are times when God reminds us that that humans aren't really in control. Natural disasters and things like that remind us, you know, a plague that spreads across the world reminds us that we don't really have as much say or as much control as we might think that we have. But generally speaking, we operate by man's rules. When you're in the United States of America, there's a certain set of laws that you have to obey, and there are laws that if you step out of line and disobey them, you'll be very quickly, that'll be very quickly addressed. Um, we saw a, an illustration of this recently, Brittany Griner, the WNBA uh, basketball player who was in Russia. She was in another, a different sovereign nation with their own set of rules, and she broke one of those rules. She got caught with marijuana, and people and she got thrown into prison and people in America are saying well that's ridiculous we shouldn't despite the fact that we do this all the time we shouldn't throw people in prison just for having a, a little bit of, of marijuana and Russia's saying it doesn't matter to us what you think my house my rules that's the way things work and and so we can we can not like the rules of the house that we're living in. We can think that they should be different. We can even seek to change them. But at the end of the day, the manager of the house dictates the rules. And even though that, generally speaking, or experience with that, generally speaking, relates to man made rules, ultimately, there's a bigger authority at play in our lives ultimately your life and the rules that you play by are not just dictated by the government that you live under, but it's dictated by the Lord who owns it all. This is his world. This is his earth. You say, well, I'll just leave. I'll go live on Mars. That's his too. You can't get away from his rule. He He owns it all, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants. You yourself belong to the Lord. Your life is not your own. Now that can produce anxiety. That can produce frustration. Depending on your view of of God and how he wants wants you to live your life, but it can also produce a lot of peace. If you're properly relating to God, it's very comforting to know. It's comfort to me in this time when, when governments seem to have lost their minds and when politics seem to be going in such a bizarre direction, it's, it's, it's peace-giving to me to know that ultimately this is his, this is his world. We're in his house, and at the end of the day, we're going to play by his rules. When man decides, when, when when man decides that he doesn't want to play by God's rules, there are consequences. If you go the whole way back to the beginning of creation, just in the first few books of Genesis, the account of creation that's given to us in the Bible, we see that very quickly man tried to change the rules. Adam and Eve because of the influence of, of Satan, tried to change the rules that God had set. And it didn't work out too well. And then and then, sometime later, we have this interesting story of the Tower of Babel. You're probably familiar with this story, but basically, God had told man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God had told man to, to be his managers, to be the, his stewards of creation, and to fill the earth with people and to cultivate creation. That's what he wanted. He wanted them to go and to fill the earth. And at some point, man said, you know what? Let's. We don't like that plan. Let's all gather together. And they literally said, let's see if we can build a building that goes up to heaven. And what their intentions were, the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us, were they, were they hoping to, to go and change God's plan, or his. were they going to contest his rules we don't know but 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 God ultimately said that's not what I told you to do that's that's not the rules that I set in place I said multiply fill the earth spread out go and cultivate the whole earth and they said why don't we make a name for ourselves and build this tower up to heaven and God said I will not let that happen and he sent confusion on the earth and all of a sudden these people who had gathered together to challenge God's rule over the earth were speaking in languages that they couldn't understand one another in. And guess what happens when you can't understand one another? You eventually spread out. <laughs> you eventually go somewhere and find the people that speak the language. It's because it's his rules. He, this is what he wanted to happen, so he's going to make sure that it takes place. The, the moral of that story should be that we don't have to like the rules, although I think the gospel teaches us that the rules are very likable. The rules are actually in our favor. But regardless of whether you're there yet or not, the point is, it's his earth. He owns it all. Creation itself is his. Mankind belongs to him. Your life is not your own. That's good news and that's bad news. The bad news is is there's something in us that wants to be autonomous. There's something in us that wants to be the final authority. There's something in us that, that wants to be on the throne of our own lives. And so that's the bad news. The good news is there's somebody far more qualified and there's somebody far better equipped to fill that role in your life. His house, his rules. Colossians 1 says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Creation is for him. And so man's responsibility is to discover his purpose, his intention, his design, and to live accordingly. You see that? Do you see how that's the, the claim that Scripture makes a, a, about this world that we live in? He is Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord who owns it all. The second thing that we see in this psalm, who is this king of glory? He is the Lord who justifies his people. This is where, why you fill that in, this is where I said once we understand the gospel, we we come to know and to believe, you know what? It's actually a good thing I'm not in control. It's a good thing that that I belong to him because his plan is better than anything that I could contrive or anything that I could create or come up with. He is the Lord who justifies his people. The psalm goes on to say, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? In other words, who in in God's house is fit to dwell with him? Who's fit to live with him? Verse four tells us the answer, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart and who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. Verse 5 says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. His house, his rules, his rules are, if you want to live with me if you want to exist in my creation if you want to be a part of what i'm doing then you need to meet these qualifications a clean clean hands and a pure heart that means that you have the hands represent what we do with our lives you've done the right things clean hands is is to say that you have not you have not acted sinfully that you've always done the right thing That's how you keep your hands clean. A a pure heart is that you have not only done the right things, but you have thought and you have desired and you have, have pursued with your will and with your mind and with your emotions that which is pure as well. Who can live with God? Those who are pure in deeds and pure in thoughts. Do you have a problem? I do. (laughs) If it's his house and his rules and these are the rules, I've got a problem. And I'm guessing you have a problem too. If the rules dictate that we must be righteous, we must be pure before God, well, the Bible's pretty clear. None of us have lived up to that standard. Let's look at Romans 3 verse 21 through 26 where Paul sort of explains this in New Testament terms. He says in Romans 3, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. Let me pause and just define a couple of things here. Uh, we'll work backwards. The, the no distinction, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's, he's giving us a, co- a context for understanding that in the Old Testament, it was predominantly the Jews who held the way of salvation. And Paul is saying, no, God's plan was always that salvation would come through the Jews to all mankind. So there's no distinction whether you're a Jew or not a Jew, there's no distinction and he's introducing a new way of attaining righteousness. Under Old Testament covenant, under Old Covenant, that what we're reading in Psalms and what we'll be exploring in Deuteronomy in the weeks ahead, under the old law and under the old way of attaining righteousness, the emphasis was I want to be careful how I say this. The emphasis was still on faith, but it was on faith that that was expressed through outward deeds, things that were meant to display that you were living righteously before God, and then when you had failed, you would come and you would make the appropriate sacrifices, and you would in that way be justified Paul's saying, "There's this new covenant, and under this new covenant, the righteousness of God, verse twenty-two, is through faith in Jesus Christ." Don't sweat if 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 I'm not making that incredibly clear yet. Don't sweat if if you're not following me um, yet. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is dependent not upon. Your clean hands and pure heart. It's in fact a way of addressing the the reality that none of us come to God with clean hands and a pure heart. None of us meet that requirement. The righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ says that He lived with clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus came and He not only died for our sins, but He actually lived the life of faith and the life of righteousness that God demands of all of us. Under his rules in his house, Jesus did it right. Jesus lived the life that God demands. Now, because of, and this is the gospel, this is the good news of of the gospel of Christ, because of what Jesus has done in living the life of righteousness before God, he now gifts that to us through faith in Jesus Christ. That means that you have not produced your own clean hands and pure heart, but you are given as a gift the clean hands and pure heart of Jesus. That's called the righteousness of Christ. It's gifted to you. Now, does this align with Psalm 24. It does, and I'll show you, but let me finish Romans 3, having paused at the end of verse 22. Verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. We've sinned. We didn't produce the clean hands and the pure heart. And they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as As the mercy seat by his blood, that's Old Covenant language, he's saying that Jesus fulfilled the demands of the Old Covenant through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. In doing things this way, it's a peculiar way of accomplishing what God intends to accomplish. The salvation of his people and making them worthy. Remember, the question in Psalm 24 is: who can who can dwell with God? Who can live with him? And the problem is, is the answer is none of us. So God goes about making us acceptable, making us Prepared, making us ready to live in his presence through the life and death of Jesus Christ, his son. It's a peculiar way of doing this, but he does it because it gives him, it it defends his justice and it enables him to justify the nearly unjustifiable. What I mean by that is is if God is a judge in a court of law and the the prosecutors bring before this judge somebody who has committed heinous crimes, then in order to remain just, that judge must punish those heinous crimes. To, To overlook heinous crimes, to simply wink at serious offenses, makes you unjust. God will not become unjust. He cannot become unjust. His character and his nature forbids it. So how is he going to justify the nearly unjustifiable? Well, God's plan is to send another in his place. And that other that he sends is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and he pays the price. He pays the penalty for that heinous crime that has been committed. And now the just judge has maintained his justice because the crime has been punished and he has found a way to justify the sinner. That's the gospel. Jesus came so that you could be justified before God. The doctrine of justification is one of The most important thing is that we as Christians believe that we are justified before God, that Jesus's righteousness has been given to us. So is this really what Psalm 24 said? The answer is yes. Let's go back and look at Psalm 24. I'll just read verses three through six again. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, and who has not appealed to what is false, who has not sworn deceitfully? In other words, somebody who's always been completely honest, who's 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 never kind of you know s- s- you know tweaked the facts a little bit in order to cover their tracks or to cover their butt. Somebody who's always been uh, very honest in everything that they have said. And then he said, "He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. He will actually receive." righteousness from the God of his salvation. The language here is such that God is still giving, God is still gifting righteousness. He'll not only receive blessing from the Lord, he'll receive righteousness. Why does he need to receive righteousness if he has lived righteously? The answer is that nobody's actually lived righteously. God is foreseeing he already knows that he's going to have to provide this righteousness in the form of his son. He's going to have to provide this righteousness in order for his people to be saved. He, who is this king of glory? He's the Lord who justifies his people. He's the Lord who, when people come to him, he makes them righteous. He, he prepares them to be able to dwell in his presence, in his creation for all of eternity. That is the great news of the gospel. He's the Lord who owns it all. He is the Lord who justifies his people. And so where should all of this lead us? Number three, you'll see on the handout, he is the Lord who deserves to be praised. He is the Lord who deserves to be praised. That's the application of this psalm. That's where this psalm goes. This psalm should lead us to praise. We are born into a world that has rules that we did not create. We are born into a world that belongs to another, and we we find out at some point in life that we're not living up to the standard set by the owner of the house and that we have a huge problem. That problem is our sin before a just God who cannot let heinous crimes go unpunished, who in order to maintain being just must punish sinners whom we we are. That's the problem that we have. But God is not only just, he is merciful. Because he is merciful, he has provided the way to justify the nearly unjustifiable. He has provided a way to make righteous the unrighteous. And we, know, <coughs> we experience that as salvation. And we experience the forgiveness of our sins and our justification before God. And then that overflows into praise. That should lead us, every single one of us, to exclaim with joy, to exclaim with everything that we have. You are worthy, and you deserve to be praised. Now, let me just speak pastorally. Um, we, we're not, we're still not perfect, right? We still battle all of the. Human obstacles to obeying Him and and um, living out the way that we should, and so we come together on Sunday mornings or soon to be Friday nights, and what is obvious is that we should just naturally praise Him, but that's not what happens. We come in here and we're distracted, or we're tired, or we're stressed, or we we feel far from the Lord, and and. And we, worship has to be pulled out of us. You can almost see it sometimes. The team up here on stage, although they're battling the same things at times, but they're trying to pull it out of you. They're trying to coax us into worship when when worship should be the most natural thing that we do. We should be We should be freely worshiping him. It should be as though we can't wait to get through those doors. We can't wait for the music to start because we have so much to praise him for. But that's not always what happens, is it? And and this is where I want to speak pastorally because I want to challenge you to keep fighting against that. I'm not saying that that you won't ever come in, you shouldn't ever come in here and you know, kind of let's say have a down Sunday where where you're fighting it more than normal. But I want you to fight it. That's what I do. I come in here and there's Sundays where I'm like, I don't, I don't know, I just don't have that energy. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not there right now, but I fight it because he's, he's worthy to be praised. And that means we should use our voices and, and without hopefully coming across as condemning those of us who refuse to sing, why? Use your voice. Use your voice to praise him. That's why he gave you this voice, is to praise him. Why don't sing? I don't know, I bet if we turned on Sweet Caroline or A Country Boy Can't Survive or something, you probably do sing. So why not sing to him? Why not worship him? Why not use your voice to to sing to him? Let's look at the psalm together. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Again, this is where the speculation comes from, that that this would have it would have been appropriate to sing out this psalm as the people ascend the hill to the temple of God, where they're coming together to worship. Much like we have a, a small hill that you come up to to gather here on Sunday. What if you were walking up that hill and we were preparing ourselves to worship, and we had people who were who were who were crying out, "Lift up your heads, you gates! Raise up, ancient doors!" Doors open so that we may come in. Picture yourself heading up to the temple, this magnificent structure that is designed to display the glory of God and to be a place where God's people worship Him and we're coming up together and we have this, this need to worship Him. And so we cry out, Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. And someone says, Who is this King of Glory? And we all shout, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And we say again, Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of Glory will come in and someone says, Who is this King of Glory? And we say, The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. He is the Lord who deserves to be praised. Worthy of that. He deserves that. You and I can't earn our way into his presence. We can't do enough good things. We can never on our own erase the sins that we have committed. He has sent his son to die in our place, and he has gifted to us justification, and he has gifted to us clean hands and pure hearts. He's gifted to us eternal life. And so our response is we praise him. And whatever's in our way, whether it's gates or doors or the sinfulness of our own hearts, we cry out, get out of the way. I'm coming to worship my king. I'm coming to lift up my voice. I'm coming to raise my hands in honor and, and worship of who he is, and of what he has done. He's worthy of this. He deserves it. Jesus, in Luke 19, we're told, he came near to the path down the Mount of Olives. This is just outside of Jerusalem. And the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees are saying they're getting out of hand. They're saying they're, they're, they're on the verge of blasphemy here. And Jesus answered them, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. In the presence of the Lord creation itself will not allow him to go unpraised if we won't he will raise up stones he will he will cause inanimate objects to worship and to praise him but that is not what he has planned his plan is that we would praise him his plan is that we would participate in his glory be recipients of of his righteousness. If you won't sing, somebody else will. And if we all won't sing, something else will. He's the king of glory. He's the one who must be praised. Psalm 148 says, praise the Lord from the earth. All sea monsters and ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and cloud, Stormy wind that executes His command. Mountains and all hills. Fruit trees and all cedars. Wild animals and cattle. Creatures that crawl and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all the people. Princes and all judges of the earth. Young men as well as young women. Old and young together. Let them praise the name of the Lord for His name alone is exalted. His majesty covers heaven And earth, who is this king of glory? He is the Lord who deserves to be praised. Will you praise him? Will you give your life to praise him? Will you use your voice? Will you use your hands? Will you use your body? Will you use your time? Will you use your resources? Will you use the talents that he's given you to praise him? Anything else is unworthy. Anything else that you give yourself to that is not put in proper submission to him, anything else that you make your life about that is not appropriately relating to the reason that he has created you is not worthy of that kind of priority. He's the king of glory. He's the Lord worthy to be praised. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord who owns it all. It's his world. He's the Lord who justifies his people. And he's the Lord who deserves to be praised. Would you pray with me?